Well, thank all of you for coming out. Uh, it's really nice to be back here. I've actually done a couple of readings here at Skylight, but not for 10 years. So it's a lot different, beautiful. But first, before we talk, I want to ask uh, Matt Sedil. Where's Matt? There he is. Matt Sedil to come up. Matt is a... A wonderful poet. When I my Indigenous Peoples History of the World came out, uh, I a month after it came out, I did a reading out at uh, in Venice, and Matt was in the audience. And a f- old friend of mine said, "There's a very famous poet in the audience," and I said, "Who is he? Who?" He said, "Matt Sedil." So I I just I don't remember names well, but I I got up and something in me I said. Is Matt Sedil here? Could you read a poem? And he came right up. So I asked him to do it here, too. It's kind of becoming a custom. So, Matt, here's your microphone. Thank you. I'm a little more prepared this time. Last time uh, it was a surprise. She was like, there's a very famous, illustrious poet in the house. I started looking around. I was, like, I was getting all mad. Like, you know, like, why is it never me? And then she said my name, and I was like, oh. All right. <laughs> All right, so I'll just do a quick poem for you. Um, Sundown, Levittown, Fort Apache, Dirty Harry, John Wayne, Blackface, Minuteman, Moynihan, Gone with the Wind, Breaking Bad. Washington, Redskin, Confederate flag, the sword, the dollar, the cannon, the scholar, the cavalry, and the Ivy League. History, as written by lightning, is the rising smoke of burning village. The ways and means which victors keep their victims. A frontier thesis, some notes on the state of Virginia, extraction, expansion, the winning of the West, Lewis and Clark, Smith and Weston. Now circle the wagon with bloodshed and slave sweat, the crack of the whip, the law of three-fifths, the crown republic of King Cotton, the intended failures of reconstruction, the housing covenants that greeted great migrations and did the same to the Mexicans and poor Mexico, so far from heaven and so close to Monroe Doctrine, to Davy Crockett, to prison industrial complex. A war on drugs is a war on our young. Bloody Christmas, reefer madness, 15 to life for four ounces, East Oakland, West Baltimore, South of La Brea and Oliver North, Plymouth Rock, Jamestown, and the Rio Grande. Stolen lives, stolen land. Thank you, Matt. So I think we're going to just launch right into it. Uh, We're going to start and read a couple of chapters and see how our time goes and devote a little bit of time to um, some Q&A. And uh, so I'm going to just launch right in. I'm going to, can can you hear me okay? Okay, great. So I'm going to read the introduction to the book. So the epigraph goes... It is quite possible that war is the continuation of politics by, other, by another means, but isn't politics itself a continuation of war by other means? And that's by Michel Foucault. No collectivity of people in the U.S. American society is as enigmatic or misunderstood as indigenous peoples. From the very first encounters with them five centuries ago, Europeans were confounded by these peoples who looked so different and lived lives that seemed not just diametrically opposed to theirs, but even blasphemous. Europeans brought with them their fears and prejudices accompanied by a sense of entitlement to the land that had been home to the indigenous peoples for untold thousands of years. They were occasionally respected by the newcomers, some of whom voluntarily left their own communities. 
in the early days of settlement to live among the Indians. They learned to speak the natives' languages, intermarried, and had children with them, sometimes for love or companionship, sometimes just to build alliances and gain access to native territories and to convert them to Christianity. But by and large, the history of relations between indigenous and settler is fraught with conflict defined by a struggle for land, which is inevitably a struggle for power and control. 500 years later, native peoples are still fighting to protect their lands and their rights to exist as distinct political communities and individuals. Most U.S. citizens' um, knowledge about Indians is inaccurate, distorted, or limited to elementary school textbooks, cheesy old spaghetti westerns, or more contemporary films like Dances with Wolves or Last of the Mohicans. Few can name more than a handful of native nations out of the over 500 that still exist or can tell you who Leonard Peltier is. Mention Indian gaming and they will have strong opinions about it one way or another. Some might even have an Indian casino in their community, but they will probably be curiously incurious if you ask them how Indian gaming came to be or about the history of the nation that owns the casino. In many parts of the country, it's not uncommon for non-native people to have never met a native person or to assume that there are no Indians who live among them. On the other hand, in places where there is a concentration of natives, like in reservation border towns, what non-native think people think they know about Indians is typically limited to racist tropes about drunk or lazy Indians. They are seen as people who are maladjusted to the modern world and cannot free themselves from their tragic past. On the whole, it can be said that the average U.S. citizen's knowledge about American Indians is confined to a collection of well-worn myths and half-truths that have Native people either not existing at all or existing in a way that fails to live up to their expectations about who real, quote-unquote, Indians are. If Indians do exist, they are seen as mere shadows of their former selves, making counterfeit identity claims or performing fraudulent acts of Indianness that are no longer authentic or even relevant. Non-natives thus position themselves, either wittingly or unwittingly, as being the true experts about Indians and their histories, and it happens at all levels of society, from the uneducated all the way up to those with advanced college degrees, and even in the halls of Congress. The result is the perpetual erasure of Indians from the U.S. political and cultural landscape. In short, for five centuries, Indians have been dis disappearing in the collective imagination. They are disappearing in plain sight. The myths about indigenous peoples that this book identifies can be traced to narratives of erasure. They have had and continue to have a profoundly negative impact on the lives of millions of native people who still live on the continent of their ancient ancestors. They work further to keep non-natives in a state of ignorance, forever misinformed and condemned to repeat the, mysteries of, the mistakes of history, silently eroding their own humanity when they fail to recognize their roles in, or more specifically, the ways they benefit from the ongoing injustice of a colonial system. For Native people, the effects are felt at every level of personal and public life. They play out in a dizzying array of overt and subtly bigoted ways, resulting in what social scientists call structural violence. Structural violence describes social arrangements that can 
that cause harm to people as they are embedded in the social and political structures of society. It can be so blatant that it manifests in acts of physical, um, individual physical violence, but it can just as easily result in harm by neglect. Erasure is one of the more subtle forms of structural violence visited upon native peoples. At a cultural level, structural violence shows up in dehumanizing portrayals of caricaturized images of Indians in the name of honor and respect. This is most obvious in the stubborn adherence to Indian sports mascots, as in the case of Dan Snyder's Washington Redskins team name. It is also visible in cultural appropriations such as the ubiquitous and seemingly harmless Indian Halloween costumes and feather headdresses worn at music festivals or by models for fashion layouts and runway displays. Cultural appropriation is especially egregious when it involves the co-optation of spiritual ceremonies and the inappropriate use of lands deemed sacred by native peoples. The New Age movement is a Pandora's box full of examples of what has been called the plastic or white shaman. Misuse of sacred land has a long history and continues. In 2015, Lakota people in South Dakota protested the annual hippie rainbow family gathering in the sacred Pahasapa, Black Hills. The Lakota claimed that these gatherings have a long history of destructive land use and also cited rainbow family drug culture, which they saw as highly disrespectful in a place they believed to be the heart and origin of their people. Popular culture has a long history of portraying stereotyped and blatantly racist images of American Indians, especially in film. Cree maker... A Cree filmmaker Neil Diamond's documentary Real Engine traces a history of Indians in Hollywood movies, identifying images that we're, we are all too familiar with. With roots in the vanishing in Indian, quote unquote, era of the late 19th and early 20th century history, Hollywood filmmakers, like other photo documentarians of the time, such as Edward Curtis, rushed to capture images of Indians before they disappeared into the mists of the past. Throughout each era of the 20th century, Indians appeared in films as literal projections of non-natives' fantasies about Indians. They include the tragically vanishing Indian, the mystic warrior, the noble and ignoble savage, and eventually the groovy engine embodied in the environmental Indian, the iconic crying Indian, for example, in you know, Iron Eyes Cody, the civil rights fighter Billy Jack, and others. Structural violence against Native people often entails a staggering assortment of legislation, court cases, executive decisions, and municipal and state actions that directly affect their lives. This sort of violence will be explored throughout this book, but one of the most potent ways that violence of erasure is deployed in U.S. society is through education. A body of scholarship identifies the ways that Native children have for generations been miseducated under deliberately repressive federal policy, and a substantial body of research also identifies the ways children in public schools are miseducated on U.S. and Native history. Education scholar Timothy Lintner writes, history is a delicate amalgam of fact and fiction tempered by personal and pedagogical perception. Though the premise of history is rooted in empiricism, the teaching of history is not so subjective. History classrooms are not neutral. 
They are contested arenas where legitimacy and hegemony battle, battle for historical supremacy. James Owen reflected this perhaps most famously in 1995 with the release of his now acclaimed book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, in which he tackled the fallacies of Columbus and Thanksgiving stories. Most tellingly, in a 2015 study, scholars examined the state standards for teaching indigenous history and culture in all 50 states and found a wide variance between them. Some states included indigenous curriculum content and some do not, but the report concluded that overall, quote, standards overwhelmingly present indigenous peoples in a pre-1900 context and relegate the importance and presence of indigenous peoples to the distant past. In other words, Indians are largely, largely portrayed as extinct. Research on Indian Indigenous invisibility and erasure is naturally most prevalent in Native studies, but it intersects with broader research on race and ethnicity, too. Critical race theorists and sociologists point out that the U.S. society operates on a system of privilege. Systems of privilege can inhere in families, workplaces, and society in general, and are organized around the principles of domination, identification, and centeredness. Whiteness is centered by default, for example. Because white people tend to occupy position of, positions of power, they possess a form of unearned privilege. Scholars emphasize the idea that racism is more than acts of individual meanness. It is built into the society and functions systematic, systematically, rendering it nearly invisible. White privilege, then, stems in large part from race as a social construction. In other words, society and its state are based on a racial hierarchy in which those identified as white have always been at the top. A conservative backlash after the civil rights gains of the 1960s and 70s resulted in a widespread social denial that racism still exists. Overtly racist laws were abolished, but race and racism are still very difficult for white people to talk about. The myths about Native peoples outlined in this book grow from the racialized social structures upon which the United States is built. Because these structures are systemic, the myths tenaciously persist despite changes in law and policy over time. Ultimately, they serve the settler state and, by extension, its international allies who largely fail to recognize the political existence of indigenous peoples. In the effort to dismantle the myths, the chapters that follow attempt to unpack various tenets of settler colonialism and at the same time construct a counter-narrative, one based on truth. Zena forgot to bring her book, by the way. <laughs> piles of books here. <laughs> she said there'll be books. Uh, yeah, so we, the reason we have... 21 myths is because th this is a series a beacon press they have a book out on 21 myths about labor unions 21 myths about immigration which is written by uh, Noam Chomsky's daughter Aviva both of them are just excellent books and when she asked us to do one on Native Americans, um, we were in that context. So it was very hard to distill all the myths. So they're kind of, in each of the myths, there are myths within myths you will find, you know, in each chapter. So it's not purely formulatic, you know, it's 
when you finish the 21 myths, you really have a, a really uh, comprehensive history, uh, uh, history and the present situation of Native peoples, I think. So it's a little different way of going at it, you know, than just a um, continuous narrative. So we thought um, we'd read uh, the um, titular chapter, because that's how the series goes, is a all the real Indians died off and 20 other myths. The one about immigration is they're taking our jobs and 20 other myths about immigration and labor unions. They're bankrupting us and 20 other myths. So you get the idea. So um, it was hard for us to come up with you know, wh which one, and we decided just to be up front and take... Uh, that's what's in everyone's mind when they do ever, if they do think about Indians, is, yeah, well, there are these Indians, okay, American Indian Movement, they took over Alcatraz, but they aren't the real Indians because they had this, you know, Pocahontas was a real Indian. And, and these are, you know, look at them in their jean jackets and jeans and, and um, running shoes or cowboy boots. Those aren't real Indians. You know that, as if the costume, the Hollywood costume, is in other words, the artificial becomes what what people are measured against, rather than um, who they really are culturally and spiritually, languages, and so forth, and, and long, long histories. So we start this first myth: um, all the real Indians died off with a quote from the late John Trudell, who, to whom we dedicate this book. Also a wonderful poet. Um, I would love to have had him and John Trudell and Matt uh, here tonight reading. But he passed away earlier this year. So this is a quote from John. When they get off the boat, when they got off the boat, they didn't recognize us. They said, who are you? And we said, we're the people, the human beings. Oh, Indians, they said, because they didn't recognize what it meant to be a human being. But the predatory mentality shows up and starts us calling us Indians and committing genocide against us as the vehicle of erasing the memory of being a human being. That's a hard act to follow uh, with our our chapter. Um, when the first Europeans came to the shores of what is now the United States, what many descendants of the original inhabitants know as Turtle Island, they encountered enigmatic people who challenged everything the newcomers believed about themselves and the world. The indigenous people looked different from them and spoke different languages, and their customs were mysterious and frightening. They inhabited a landscape that was entirely foreign and wild. Perhaps most disturbing, they were not Christians. But they had one thing the immigrants wanted, land and the life it could give them. In the subsequent five centuries since those early encounters, gaining access to that land has been the central factor that has shaped the relationships between indigenous peoples and immigrant. These relationships have never ceased to be vexed and conflict-ridden. 
They have been and continue to be characterized by seemingly endless ignorance, arrogance, and misunderstanding. Where do the myths about Native people come from? What are the motives behind them, and what purpose do they serve? To answer these questions, we need to look at the ways experts in the social sciences talk about history, the nature of the society we live in, and how modern countries are formed. There is not unanimous agreement on everything, but there are certain generalities that can reasonably be claimed. For instance, some social scientists talk about the master narratives of a country that describe things like its national character and history. The narratives have many purposes, one of them being to construct a sense of national, or more to the point, uh, state identity. In countries like the United States, where citizens otherwise have very little in common with each other besides a shared language or a history of immigration, the narratives reinforce a contrived sense of unity. They reflect what acclaimed international relations scholar Benedict Anderson famously called an imagined community. From where do the master narratives come? They are woven into the fabric of society from the start in its founding documents like the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution, and then gain hold through the printed word, through the mass media, whatever period of time, through the education system. They are simplified, amplified during times of national crisis and manifested through patriotic public displays during national holidays and through the singing of national anthems at sporting events, many on their knees these days, and other public gatherings. As Anderson suggests, the effervescence generated in these public spaces is itself the outward expression of this imagined unity. A country's master narratives are not necessarily based in fact or truth. They are sometimes deliberately fictitious or contradictory of document, documented history. One of their purposes is to provide rationalization or justification for injustices committed against others in the name of democracy and liberty. In this way, many master narratives are more like state mythologies designed to undergird the patriotism and emotional commitment necessary in a loyal citizenry. All of the myths about American Indians emerge out of larger narratives that construct the United States as a place of exceptional righteousness, democracy, and divine guidance or manifest destiny or what has been called American exceptionalism. The myths tell more about the non-native mind than they tell about native peoples. They are clues that point to the motivations, aspirations, and ambivalence about U.S. history and the collective identity of its citizens. We'll explore this more throughout the book. No myth about native people is as per pervasive, pernicious, or self-serving as the myth of the vanishing native, also known as the vanishing Indian, or the vanishing race. The myth, which has been building for centuries, reached an extreme 
At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, a time when the Indian wars of resistance had come to a conclusion punctuated by the massacre at Wounded Knee in 1890. In 1900, the U.S. Census counted approximately a quarter of a million Indians, a small fraction of the indigenous population in 1492 even based on a modest population estimate of 10 million, and that would just be the U U.S., not North America, including Mexico. That would be 40 million. And census figures such as this have been used to prove, in quotes, the vanishing Indian myth. It's true enough that the native population had diminished dramatically throughout the centuries due to slavery, disease, war, and Christianization, which often took people away, uh, took away people's names, languages, and even their clothing and hair. But the larger point to understand about the self-serving function of the myth is how it was used to advance dubious, even nefarious, political agendas aimed at the continual seizure of Indian lands and resources. It was used by both the friends of and foes of Indians to justify policies of forced assimilation, which would mean the final solution to the Indian problem. The ultimate disappearance of the Indians to facilitate the transfer of Indian treaty lands into settler ownership. One reason the myth of the vanishing native has been so pervasive is that it has been woven into history books by predominantly non-native historians and researchers who have wittingly or unwittingly served political agendas. But there has been a marked shift in the way history is being told, thanks to the increasing scholarship of Native peoples and their allies, who in the past 40 to 50 years have been reframing conventional historical narratives. This reframing, and I can say this book and my previous book are couldn't have been written without all of that work that has been done over the last 40 or 50 years, sort of distilling it in, into these more accessible books. There's been a marked shift in the way it's been told, and um, this framing is often referred to generally as post-colonial theory or post-colonial studies. And it views history from a larger perspective that, among other things, recognizes the role of imperial and state power and its abuse in the shaping of the modern world. It sees history in terms of post-Columbus, European, and U.S. expansionism and its effects, the effects it had and continues to have on indigenous people. It also encompasses Native perspectives by incorporating the growing academic field of Native American and international indigenous studies. This recent scholarship, sometimes derisively called revisionist history, has rendered incomplete, if not obsolete, much of the earlier scholarship of, of uh, non-Indian historians. Within post-colonial studies is a theoretical framework known as settler colonialism. Viewing history through a lens of settler colonialism 
entails making distinctions between the ways colonization played out in different places. And it does this in two fundamental ways. First, when European empires, predominantly the English, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and French, spread into Africa and Asia, they did so primarily to exploit national, natural resources such as gold, silver, and other uh, minerals and timber. They established colonies as bases from which to run their business enterprises and sometimes, especially in the case of the Spanish and the French, married into indigenous cultures to secure better access to those resources. For the most part, however, they didn't send large populations from the metropolis or the metropoles, countries or empires of origin. Thus, in the African and Asian social uh, colonial contexts, the indigenous peoples remained the majority populations, even though they had become dominated through military power and religious conversion. This is why the decolonization movements in those continents during the mid-20th century were able to re-establish indigenous control, however problematically, in, for example, Africa, and expel the foreign powers. But in the Americas and a few other places like Australia and New Zealand, the colonial powers engaged in wholesale population transfer sending massive numbers of settlers to occupy the lands, resulting in new countries after successful rebellion separated colony from the empire. So they became independent republics in the Americas. And settlers kept coming. As these settlers came to outnumber the indigenous populations, it became impossible for the indigenous people to expel the invaders. The theory of settler colonialism has gained wide acceptance among indigenous scholars in the United States and other settler states over the past decade. It postulates, as the Australian scholar Patrick Wolfe has written, and Patrick Wolfe was a wonderful Australian scholar. He passed away suddenly this spring after we had already put this book into uh, publication. But his work is wonderful. So Patrick Wolfe has written uh, that the singular goal of a settler state relative to indigenous peoples is the elimination of the native in order to gain access to land. The elimination of the native can take place in a multitude of ways, including full-scale genocidal war against the native people, but it is usually more insidious than that. Not so much an overtly historical event it becomes woven into the structure of settler society through practices that chip away at the very concept of native. Examples of these practices include officially encouraged uh, intermarriage, privatization of indigenous lands, forced assimilation via social systems like boarding schools and other educational institutions and public schools in general, citizenship bestowal, which happened at the federal level in 1924, child abduction and adoption, and religious conversion, to name just a few. The myth of the vanishing native can be traced precisely to the impulse of the state to eliminate the native. 
It can be thought of as a central organizing myth from which most other popular myths about Native people arise. As a predominant myth, it is informed by the past and reaches into the present and future to continue challenging ideas about who American Indians are on a cultural level, which has ramifications at the, le uh, at the legal level in determination of who is an Indian and who is not. It is a fully exclusionary project that limits Native as a category of racial and political identity. This is why deconstructing myths about American Indians is so important. At their core, the debates about Indianness are debates about authenticity. Authenticity is predicated upon specific dynamics that define real Indians. These are common sense, you know, in quotes, common sense, understandings that are built into society's dominant narratives where certain assumptions are held to be unquestionably true. For example, real Indians are expected to look a certain way based on an appropriate minimum blood quantum, in quotes, or real Indians live on reservations, not in cities, and they embody the requisite appropriate blood quantum. These examples imply an impossible ideal about Indians as frozen in an unchanging past, where they are unable to be both modern and Indian. Today's Native Studies scholarship tackles these deeply embedded stereotypes. In one study, Jenny O'Brien sought to understand how Indians were written out of New England history between 1820 and 1880, despite the fact that they continued to live in the region. Based on reading hundreds of local histories, she discovered a pattern in which Indians were not recognized as Indians, in part to justify the seizure of their lands, due to their intermarriage with non-natives or because they lived as modern, non-Native people did. O'Brien writes, The penchant for Indian purity as authenticity also found essential expression in the idea of the ancient. Non-Indians refused to regard culture change as normative for Indian peoples, for all peoples, Thus, while Indians adapted to the changes brought by colonialism by selectively embracing new ways and ideas, such transformations stretched beyond the imagination of New Englanders. Indians could only be ancients, and refusal to behave as such rendered Indians inauthentic in their minds. O'Brien's work, as that of numerous other scholars, is to challenge the myths that re equate blood purity and cultural status with native authenticity. The myth of the vanishing Indian is entirely untrue, if for no other reason than because there are currently 567 federally recognized Native nations in the United States today and because according to the 2010 U.S. Census, 5.2 million people identified as Native American or Alaskan Native, either alone or in combination with other races. About 2.9 million people identified as Native American or Alaskan Native alone. 
But because of the vanishing Indian myth, is today more concerned with authenticity of those who claim to be Indians, a nuanced argument is required, one that we'll return to repeatedly. What this book is ultimately about is how society's hidden assumptions have led to the myths that persist with mostly harmful consequences to Native people. So, thank you. Questions, comments. We also have a chapter on genocide, so, uh, you know, elimination is specific forms of elimination or other myths. There's no genocide is one myth. Yes? I can't hear you. Can you? Oh, he asked about the, the, to explain what blood quantum is. So, what blood quantum attempts to um, distinguish is, well, there's a lot to say about it, but um, it, it's when you say, like, you're half Indian or I'm a quarter Indian or I'm a 16th, you know, it's a quantification of, um, your, of heritage. And it's, it's a system that was in, put in place by the, federal, by the federal government. I mean, it was not a system that Native people ever recognized for themselves because they in, intermarried, you know. I mean, Indians have been intermarrying with, with um, nations of other people forever. I mean, you know, the Navajos were intermarrying with Pueblo people and um, Plains people were inter- intermarrying with other Plains people. And other, I mean, it's always happened that way, but they never talked about it in those terms. But the federal government came along and um, talked about, I mean, it's, it starts in the 1700s, the early 1700s when, in the state of Virginia um, when they're, you know, uh, attempting to keep populations separate. And um, there's so much to say about that, but there's, what you can say is that if you're familiar with the concept of the one-drop rule, in, in among African Americans, one drop of black blood makes you black, right? And and that follows the logic that in slave society, in the, the days of slavery, the condition, the the a person's, um, you know, who they are follows the condition of the mother. So, um, in, inevitably, black people were born to black mothers who were slaves so it it ensured a constant population of slaves and so because of that one drop of black blood makes you black in indigenous populations it was opposite um the and the reason for that is that it's about um eliminating populations the more that you can you know, dilute bloodlines, eventually they're going to be gone. That's the logic behind it. So um, it, it became woven into um, even the way Native nations determines who their citizens are, the members, their tribal members, and it's one of the problems that keeps lingering. So, um, and it's one of the things that, that tribes are, are more and more addressing because it's something that we call statistical or paper genocide. If you keep imposing those kinds of um, definitions of who people are, 
they're going to all be gone. And it completely misses the point of, of identity and um, culture being a function of, of relationality and kinship, as it always was in Native communities. It was never about your race and, you know, quantifying who you are. It's always about um, how you live and how, how, who you belong to. And, um, and that's a whole other thing. We have this saying in Indian country that says being Indian is not really about what you claim, but who claims you. So it's about belonging. Yeah. It's actually fifty percent in Ho- in Hawaii. Yeah, the Hawaiian Homelands Commission. Um, yeah, absolutely, and that's really how it how it starts, especially during the late eighteen eight, late nineteenth century during the Dawes Act when they were partitioning land, you know, privatizing land, breaking in um, reservation and treaty lands into individual allotments, and those allotments were um, were were associated with with blood quantum and and it became it just became cemented into the tribe's own determinations of indian but the way it went was that if the less the more blood quantum that you had if you were like 50% indian or more you were considered competent and they had these things called competency commissions and the less competent you were were the, those lands could be held in a 25-year like waiting period, but the less Indian blood that you had, the more competent you were thought to be, and so there was um, an agenda attached to that, which seems pretty obvious. That um, the more they could um, dilute those bloodlines, th- those by the way, those bloodlines, those um, competencies, those less than 50 percent and thus more competent meant that you weren't subject to this 25-year waiting period. So that meant that if you could, uh, if you needed to and wanted to sell your lands, you could. So it was a way of more easily separating Indians from their lands. And um, it was something that happened a lot. It also happened fraudulently a lot. Um, And it was simply because people were so poverty-stricken. There was so, they were just so desperate that those people, uh, you know, sold, it happened in my family. My grandmother sold her allotment in 1961. Um, It was, you know, an 80-acre allotment for something like $4,000. And it's gone, you know. It's it's gone. It'll never come back. But um, there was a lot of... um, a lot of fraud associated with that because there were always, you know, these white Indian agents who were in charge of making this happen. Good questions. A couple more questions and then we'll... Uh. Um, is, does any of the Repeat it into oh. so everyone. Do can. any of the chapters have a gender focus? No. There is a chapter on. Uh, we call it. Let's see, can't remember the title. It's a good title. 
What's the problem with thinking of Indian women as princesses or squaws? So we use that, um, you know, that dichotomy of the authentic princess, Indian princess, Pocahontas being the classic, uh, or a beast of burden, you know, who never talks, a silent squaw, you know, kind of following in the footsteps of, of her man, you know. And both are just ridiculous, you know, I mean, ridiculous mythologies, but these are, these are the authentic. So it's a little different for the men, have to be warriors, you know, with, uh, with no shirts on, you know, naked body and uh, lots of feathers and everything and look like the Hollywood the, the Hollywood Indian. Well, Hollywood's also created these two myths, the, the Pocahontas, the princess myth, and the, um, and the squaw, you know, and, and then just the absence of women. You know, just where are the women in all these westerns, you know? And so, yeah, that chapter was... Uh, it, we're really lucky because we have so many strong feminist, native feminist scholars now that we had rich material, you know, for that, to counter that myth. And I think, you know, in a lot of places, these myths have, some of the myths we do are very, you know, are not so common in some places where people have been exposed to Native American studies. But in the whole swath of the interior of the country, especially where the Indian populations are, like, that's another matter of the racism on the, in the borderlands. That's, that's a far more just uh, murderous, violent you know, it's not even mythology. It's just kill the Indian, you know, attitude. But back east, um, they they have nothing but the Hollywood, you know, or whatever image that they're given. I like to tell the story of, um, I mean, it's a sad story, but uh, my former husband, where I get my Ortiz, and my name is Simon Ortiz, the Acoma Pueblo poet, and he came to live with me in San Francisco when we were married. And he took, uh, he was, you know, at Thanksgiving time, teachers were always looking for a real Indian, you know, to come to their, talk to their children. And so he got a call. Someone told him, you know, about this wonderful poet, and he had written a children's book, too. And he went over to Marin County. If you know, Marin County is the richest county in the United States of almost totally white people. And uh, to this, you know, it's a public school, but rich little white kids, all white little kids and first graders. And they told, you know, the teacher said, we're going to have a real Indian come in and talk to you. And I wasn't with him, but he described it. He he had long, he had you know, the Pueblos wear their hair very long, or up in a Xingnong, he had it long. But dressed in just a, you know, plaid shirt, blue jeans, cowboy boots, just plain. But he's very, very dark, too. He walked in the room, and the kids all started crying. They were scared of him. The teacher was so embarrassed, you know, oh, God. And he w- he's used to it, you know, little white kids being scared of him. 
And he just, he had them eating out of his hand, you know, before the hour was over. But without that contact, you know, their imagery, what were they thinking when the teacher was describing, they're probably building up their fear of just, you know, subconsciously at six years old already having this fear. So that, you know, that really clicked with me at the time. It's like that I I had never really thought, I thought it's something you you learn lies, but it actually is much deeper than that in the subconscious when a little six-year-old is filled with fear. Yeah. Can you speak a little louder? Sure. What's kind of the current state of the, the uh, Indian movement to preserve identity and cultures compared to, let's say, 20 years ago? Is, it, um, you know, is there cohesiveness? Is there a lot of activism happening currently? Is it a, sort of a, a growing movement? Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's really probably the most evident in the climate justice movement. You know, as we see the Dakota Access, the current Dakota Access pipeline controversy, and you know, and that follows on the heels of Idle No More, um, and I, I think that it's it's gotten to the point where everybody knows that it's everybody's issue. Indigenous prote- protection of land and resources is about protecting resources for everybody, not just for indigenous peoples. And um, I think that that's the the main shift. I mean, yes, is it about protecting identity and culture? Yes, of course. But at this point, um, there's a lot at stake for everybody, and and everybody knows it. So there's, uh, yeah, I do. I think that that, that's probably the, the primary way of doing it. And then... Also, as I said earlier about um, tribes starting to change their blood quantum requirements, they're more and more um, abandoning them and, and adopting um, what's called lineal descent. In other words, if you can claim um, and document a connection to a native ancestor, that's enough. Not all tribes are doing that, but it's definitely a, um, a trend. And there's kind of a move to the concept of naturalization, you know, instead of adoption, where as a nation, you know, you become a naturalized citizen. You can go and become French if you want. If you learn the language, you learn, you know, you you become a part of that. Well, they kind of force you to here, and there's France and United States especially are very nationalistic. But um, so... There's no reason why Native people shouldn't make demands on on a person with lineal descent. Well, uh, with it comes a certain responsibility, you know, that you bring. You have responsibilities, not just the right to be an Indian. And people who want to be Indian, they have no idea what the responsibilities are that goes with that. It's not just, you know... Wearing, being in an exotic uh, ceremony, or it's uh, it's human relations. You know, it's relation kinds of relationships with people, with nature, with the land that is very difficult uh, to do. So it, it's hard 
even without all the racism at all, it's hard. It's hard work, you know. And most of them want whatever benefit they think there is authenticity. Because, you know, there's a shaky identity on the part of U.S. citizens, especially descendants of the original settlers. As immigrants from elsewhere where they have left a nation, they know it's still there. People leave Mexico, but you know, Mexico's not going to go away, or China. It's still a link that gives, you know, a sense of who they are. But Europeans came, they lost their connection with their mother countries, you know, the the British and the Scots and the Irish and uh, Welch who, who came, and many, many Germans. And so there's this lack of sense of authenticity, that they don't belong to the land. And I think that's a lot of our problems with insecurity and violence in this country. And so they want to take the authenticity that they imagine is Indian and say they have it in themselves. And this then makes them, but with none of the responsibilities to protect the earth, to... to, uh, work on relationships with one another and that the collective is just as important as the individual, the mutuality, the gifting. and um, So they don't want to take that. They just want this sense of authenticity. And, it, and they never really have it, so they demand it of the Indian, you know, that you have to be authentic. Or you're just like us and we're nothing. And which isn't really true. You know, that no one's nothing. All human beings are sacred uh, beings, you know. Well, I think you're supposed to buy books now. <laughs> and you can, oh yeah, you make one comment. But you can come up and talk to us while we sign your book. <laughs> and this is Dina's sister, so she gets to say it. <laughs> it's, it seems like a perfect tool to educate the masses and what are your attempts to have this brought into the um, schools, into the curricula of history, the history of the studies, which should be a very young age, you know. Well, is that a question? What are? Yeah, well, it's kind of an observation, but also a question. Are you, are you looking at um, having this book and maybe future books brought into our school system to properly educate the masses. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have you know Beacon Press is a is a wonderful press. I always give them a plug. Are there any Unitarians here? Oh, no Unitarians in LA. It's owned by the Unitarian Universalist Church. <clears throat> If you can call it a church, I mean it's a it's a, it's a it's a movement of wonderful people, and um, it's a nonprofit. It's a very ethical publishing company, and they are very respected by uh, teachers. You know, ed- very tied in with educational system. They published Martin Luther King's papers. Uh, they they started out as an abolitionist press in the 1840s in Boston and they're still located in Boston's Beacon Hill, on Beacon Hill. So they have this uh, this ethical commitment, and uh, this is what they care about, is education. Like my other book is now being made into a uh, YA, a young adult version, 
by Debbie Reese, the wonderful Debbie Reese. Oh, wow. uh, it's being translated into Spanish, so it can be used in you know in um, immigrant communities here. And um, we haven't yet you know talked about future. This book is designed to already be able to be used by teachers. It will get adopted. My other book's been adopted in really a lot of classes. Even in the eighth grade, you know, we were doing a young adult book, but I'm not, uh, you know, I I am in awe of people who can write young adult literature. And Debbie's, her, what she's writing is better than my book, I think. So, yeah, they really, uh, they really are committed. So they have very good connections you know teachers are hungry for this i mean they they want to know they know that that what they've what they've been taught what everybody's been taught is is a really skewed version of history and and they want the truth they want to be able to teach the truth but they are at a loss they don't know where to get the truth and there's um you know there's a lot of in native studies there's a lot of native studies books hardcore academic books but there's not very many books like this that are accessible to mm-hmm. the average reader, and, and that's what that's who this book is written for, and it's written written for really for educators. So it's really, I think it's kind of like trans. I think of us as with this book as translating, yeah, it's translating these really complex concepts into language that is more understandable and that's without not right. dumbing it down yeah. like some things that dumb it down just kind of reinforce the myths you know so we trust that people have minds you know and they really um this is can also be taken you know used by teachers at any level and just taken parts of it you know for different sections they're teaching there's another great book out I highly recommend if people are in education or making recommendations to teachers is called uh, Why United States History Cannot Be Written Without Indians and it's designed to be to follow the kind of U.S. history high school first year college U.S. history where the chapter can be taken out and put into that, and they're really brilliant essays by about ten different Native and non-Native uh, specialists on Native American histories. Very, very good book from North Carolina, I think. Yeah, University of North Carolina. All right, CJ says we have to stop and sell books. <laughs> Support your independent bookstore. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.